You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so delighted that we get to spend the next hour together taking a journey around the arts. Imagine you work on a fundraising campaign for 10 years to raise enough money so that you can commission a sculptor to create a work that celebrates the mother of feminism. And when your long-awaited sculpture gets unveiled of the woman who was an advocate for women's rights when there were none, who was a philosopher and writer and an activist, the sculpture of this towering figure of feminism that you have spent $190,000 on is unveiled as a six-inch, silvery, naked, every woman rising out of an amorphous mass of silvered bronze that is vaguely suggestive of female torsos, but really vaguely. Oh, and did I say she was naked and really small and seven feet up in the air? This week, there was an unveiling of a statue of the English feminism pioneer Mary Wollstonecraft, who died at the age of 38 in 1797, just 11 days after giving birth to her second daughter, the writer Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. She sits in a park in northeast London and has been met mostly with bewilderment, plus some outrage, because as Brits, we love a good outrage. It's actually one of our national pastimes. But really, I would encourage you to get on the Googles and look up Mary Wollstonecraft statue, London. The sculptor, British artist Maggie Hambling, says that she didn't want to clothe her as it would restrict her to a specific time and place and that this is a sculpture about now, in her spirit, which sounds like a lot of bollocks to me. I mean, okay, let's think about statues of great male leaders. Isaac Newton at Trinity College, Cambridge, fully clothed, in an academic robe. Admiral Horatio Nelson in Trafalgar Square. Full military regalia and hat. Nelson Mandela in London's Parliament Square. Lovely bronzed flowery shirt and trousers. Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. Trousers, check. Frock coat, check. Waistcoat, check. And cravat. Imagine if any of these great male leaders had instead been carved naked genitalia in the breeze, it would be totally bonkers. And given how much Mary's reputation was smeared by misogyny, and given how women's bodies are still seen as public domain, even by a particular president, it seems like we have done Mary Wollstonecraft a pretty grave injustice with this commemorative statue. Okay, vent over, but Google it, really. So where are we off to on this week's show? Well, we're going to start with some theatre, courtesy of Greenhouse Theatre Project, catch up with Barbie Banks to find out the latest on the 2021 True False Film Fest and end at Columbia Entertainment Company with more theatre. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. 
If you like theatre and have been missing the in-person experience, then, like me, you have probably been consuming it online. And I'll be honest, I watch theatre online mostly because I want to be supportive and my heart breaks thinking about a post-pandemic world where there are just swirling dust bunnies where once there were vibrant theatre companies. But every time Greenhouse Theatre Project launches a new online production, I not only buy tickets with the same glee that I would if it was happening in real life, but I also contact my friends around the world to see if they want to attend with me because A, that's the great thing about virtual performances and B, the level of virtual theatre that Greenhouse Theatre Project's Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri has been making is exceptional and connects with audiences not only in Columbia, Missouri, but also in Adelaide, Australia and London, England. And Greenhouse Theatre Project is back next week with the second of this season's Living Room One Acts Pandemic Edition. And not only is the aforementioned Elizabeth Brown Palmieri here with us this morning, but also along for the ride is the playwright, Rigel Oliveri. Good morning, Elizabeth and Rigel. Good morning. Good morning. Elizabeth, when I asked you to send me some information about the production, you sent me the same two short sentences that I could read on the publicity literature. (laughs) Quote, a couple plans a trip, but one of them has a different destination in mind. Prepare to have your heartstrings tugged in this short and sweet one act. So here's the deal. Unless you want this segment to be extremely short, you are going to have to not play coy and expand on that because I have nothing to go on. So Elizabeth... (laughs) What is this play about? Well, this play is a conversation between a husband and a wife. Uh, They are on Zoom with each other, so we understand that they are not in the same space. And uh, it's, you know, a typical evening. The husband has just finished putting the kids to bed, and he's kind of recapping that experience with his wife who's checking in with him and they are talking about a trip that they are hoping to go on together. And why are they talking on Zoom? Because she is actually, well, see, I didn't want to give you the spoiler. <laughs> it's meant to be a Diana, spoiler, you little, but you've you got to give me, you've give me something. <laughs> so she is um she's getting treatment so she is at a hospital and she is returning to home the next day and so she's still in the hospital getting her treatment so rigel tell me about writing this play and who inspired the characters is this your first play yes it is i am my day job is being a law professor so this is my first foray into writing something that's not, you know, articles about the Constitution. Um, (laughs) And I originally did this about a year or two ago. There was a call that Elizabeth put out, the Greenhouse Theater put out for people to community submissions for Living Room One Acts. Um, And I had written this originally thinking that it would be performed in that way if, you know, if they wanted to perform it at all. I'd written it for two characters in the same space on a couch But uh, Elizabeth asked me if there's a way I could try to adapt it for the Zoom environment, and I did. And I was just so thrilled that they were even thinking about putting it on at all. It's 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 really uh, it's a real thrill for me. Um, The the play itself was inspired by characters. Uh, The characters are inspired by real life. Uh, Obviously, I've taken some artistic license with with who they are, 
in their specific situation, but it was inspired by some real conversations that I had with my husband uh, at the time. So some of it is kind of semi-autobiographical in a way, but I definitely adapted it for a different scenario and a different way that, it, that it's being presented. Was there anything that you had to drastically change for this new format? You know, not really. Elizabeth, um, when she first approached me about it, I thought, well, this is going to be really hard because part of the part of my original idea was that there was a lot of intimacy between the two. You know, they were supposed to be kind of snuggled up on the couch together. But once I thought about it and kind of retooled it for Zoom, I didn't really have to make a lot of changes at all. It actually, I think, works kind of nicely because then you get a contrast between where each one of them is. You know, one of them is at home, snuggled on the couch, and one of them is in a hospital room somewhere. And that actually, I think, is probably going to make it more dramatic, but without losing the intimacy of them being face-to-face, even though it's on a screen. Elizabeth, theatre by Zoom is an art form that did not exist in anyone's imagination until a few months ago. And although you have become the mistress of unusual spaces over the past decade here in Colombia, I'm guessing that not even you had rehearsed the skills needed for this kind of theatrical interaction. So having done two very successful productions this year using Zoom, tell me what you've learned from this new medium of theatre. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, it's one of those things that it's either sink or swim, you know, you kind of you jump in and you learn on the fly. And that's, that's something that I actually uh, enjoy doing, you know, I enjoy doing that actually in the rehearsal room and uh, with any kind of material I get my hands on anyway. So to me, the zoom platform is just another space. It's another venue. Um, I'm not traditional, you know that. And so you know, I also am not a person of technology. I actually loathe it. And so this has been, you know, it's, it's, it's been challenging, but it's also, you know, it's coming to terms with the world around me, the world I'm living in and my, my uh, medieval art form and trying to <laughs> you know bring it into the world that we, we live in today. And cause basically, you know, at the end of the day, what I do is I'm a storyteller. That's, 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 what I do. And when I teach other storytellers, other actors, I tell them, all you need is your body and your voice and your imagination. You know, you just need empathy to be able to put yourself in that person's shoes and just tell the story. And this kind of takes me down a different path because now I don't only need those things, but I also need a good internet connection and you know all these different things that um, that that have come into play. And and so no, you know there there was definitely no real preparation for it. But I think that each time I do a new production online on Zoom or stream or whatever, um, you just kind of get a little bit more comfortable with it, and at the same time knowing that the connection can disconnect at any moment. So I try to go into it the same way that I do when I perform live, which is that just be in the present moment. Anything can happen. Roll with the punches, stuff like that. It's kind of the way I live my life too. <laughs> and <laughs> and so when, as Rigel said, you know, this this piece actually works really well for Zoom. And I was hesitant to approach her about it because I didn't want to 
I don't know, downplay like what, what this piece could do live. But for some reason, what I have found with zoom is that there's actually, you know, I was at at first scared about losing that intimacy with the performer and between actors. And I've actually found that the intimacy is almost more intense. It's intensified with this platform because first of all, the actors are so close to their screen, you know, and you're looking, you're looking into that camera or you're looking into the eyes of your partner who's, who's yes, like however many miles away from you. But at the same time, there is that, that connection is still there and that energy is still palpable. And I think that that's been kind of shocking for me to actually be able to um, experience that. And I think for a piece like this, it just works so nicely to have these two people who are going through something together um, there, they're, they're, they're looking directly at each other. They're facing each other the entire time. And, and you feel that too, I think is the audience when you're, when you're watching that you're right there with them. So it, it works. Rigel, this might be a little early to say, but you know, what are your plans for travel plans looking forward? I mean, you've adapted it to a zoom theater experience, but it was originally written as a live on stage play do you have a sense of of whether there are two plays going forward or whether you're going to focus it as either an on-screen or an on-stage production well gosh I'm just I'm just so happy that Greenhouse is doing it um that I'm you know I'm excited about seeing what it looks like on Zoom and honestly that may be that may be all it is is just these two nights for a Zoom performance and and if that's the case I will be just thrilled beyond belief that they were interested in putting it on and that people were interested in watching it. Like I said, I don't really, most of my writing is about the law. And so this is kind of a foray into something different for me. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) I'm not quite quite sure what the future will hold. (laughs) Of course, the beauty of this format, as I said in my intro, is that you are no longer limited by your location. Zoom theatre can be accessed all over the world. And as you know, Elizabeth, you now have a fan in Adelaide, Australia, my bestie, (laughs) Guy Morgan, who has come with me from his sofa in Australia to your last two productions. And we sit and we have a drink together and we're watching it on Zoom and then we have our phones on FaceTime. And so we're kind of like hanging out together and that's just really awesome. Do you have a sense of the new breadth of your audiences through this time? Yeah, that has actually been this unexpected and incredibly exciting component, I guess, to this online venture. I I think, you know, first with Natural Shocks, we had people from all over the world. I mean, you know, most of them were people who were friends of mine already that, you know, we're just excited to be able to actually, you know, see something that I was doing with my company here in Columbia. But then moving on with COVID buddies, which my brother penned in LA, then he had a bunch of people, he's in the entertainment business out there. And so then all of a sudden, we sold 70, 80 tickets to people in California. And then I was a lot of East Coast. So basically, the last couple shows we've done, we've sold the majority of our tickets have been from either coast and then, you know, then the Midwest and abroad. But like the coasts have been uh, where we've seen the bulk of our ticket sales. And that's very exciting. I think the last show we did, I when I went through the ticket print off at the end, I only knew maybe a third of the ticket buyers. So to me, that's 
that's progress, I guess, but that's also, it's just speaking to this, this platform and that people uh, are willing to take a chance on this and willing to take a risk. You know, when I, when I first was going to do this with natural shocks, I have a lot of friends who are actors or in the theater world and they, you know, they were patting me on the back. Oh, good for you. Good for you to do that. But I don't want anything to do with, with virtual theater. You know, that they themselves were really bitter about what was happening to their field, to their work. Um, people who had been laid off from Broadway, um, you know, regional shows that had been shut down, you know, their life's work. And so there was just a lot of bitterness. And, um, and then they kind of realized, oh, you know, they're seeing their, their friends, they're, they're, they're trying to support other people, and then they want to get involved. And then it's like, oh, actually, this is just another platform. This is just another stage. And, and it's another challenge, you know, for an artist, for Rigel to be able to adapt this piece to, to this platform. That was a challenge, but something that she was willing to do. And that then gave us this creative motivation to tell her story because it's an incredibly personal story. And I feel so honored that she is sharing it with us to tell. Well, given that it is a very personal and autobiographical story and that obviously, you know, she's a friend of yours, the playwright, how, how difficult is it to, because you are her, I guess, in the play, the autobiographical component, and that's the one that you're performing how difficult is it performing that when it's your friend's story? I'm actually not her. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm, and you know what, Diana? I'm not going to say anything else about that. <laughs> um, but no, uh, it it is it is challenging. Um, Rigel and I actually spoke last winter. I was going to help her with a fundraiser for a camp that is for children who have had parents or family members die of cancer. Camp Kesem is what it's called. And she was going to have this fundraiser and we were going to perform at it. We were probably going to actually perform this piece at it. And, and then, of course, COVID hit, so that all fell apart. But what was important to me about being a part of that was that uh, my father died of cancer when I was a kid. And so there are all these connections. I, I saw a lot of this happen play out between my parents, these kinds of conversations. And so it's personal on many levels, I think, for both Rigel and I, you know, and I connected to it immediately when I first read it a year and a half ago. And it, I'm so glad that I waited with this one. I knew I wanted to do it at some point, but I'm glad that it is actually happening in, in this capacity. Well, most existing theatre does not marry well with this new medium of Zoom. But I'm guessing that playwrights across the world have been hard at work this year writing new works, because I mean, what else is anybody doing that are specific to Zoom theatre? I'm wondering what else you have seen or read that excites you, Elizabeth? So I actually, if you remember Julia uh, Vallon, who did COVID Buddies, and she was in HEDA last year with us, she and a, and a friend have actually just finished a play that is written for Zoom, and Greenhouse is going to do it this next winter. She proposed it to me, asked if we would produce it, if we'd be interested. And uh, so I'm actually really excited about that <laughs> because for the most part, you know, there's a lot of talking. When you read the the plays that are written for Zoom, they're very talky talk. And if you know me, it's it's 
I am a physical actor, so this has been a challenge for me my, to just kind of constrain my body to not want to just go every place, you know what I mean? And instead put that energy and that focus into the stillness. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but it's a lot like film. And so I actually have been watching a lot of people read or perform film scripts like, you know, scripts that were written for film, I've actually been watching more of that than I have been watching, you know, plays, per se, that are written for Zoom. And because I think that there's a marriage between that, this is a hybrid, Is this is kind of how I've been explaining it to people, what I've been doing is it is somewhere living between theater and film. And that's what makes the work exciting to me is it feels like just a new technique. And that is interesting because that is causing some eruptions between the Screen Actors Guild and the Actors' Equity Association because there's a lot of bleed over suddenly into each other's territory and people aren't very happy about it. Does that impact Greenhouse at all? Yeah, actually, early on when COVID first hit, I had a couple weeks where I was feeling sorry for myself. And then I was just like, okay, I got to get to work. And I was making a bunch of calls. I wanted to immediately employ some of my friends who are equity to start doing some, you know, I wasn't quite sure what we were going to do exactly. I was looking at a bunch of different material and just basically wanted people to get back to work and wanted to give people who are like trapped at home something to watch or look at. And I had a ton of issues with Actors Equity Association because they hadn't figured their stuff out yet as to like, you know, what the rules and regulations were. So they pretty much were making it almost impossible for me to hire these people. And I, you know, I had the funding and I had the ability, I just needed the contracts to fill out and they kind of put the kibosh on it. And now things have changed a little bit. But I think that that was, um, I think that that was really poor on their side, because there were actors who were willing and able and wanting to be doing something. And because they were bound by equity, they couldn't. Yeah, it always comes down to who's making the money out of it, I suppose, at the end of the day. And so you've got two different unions that are fighting for the rights to earn earn money from the situation. Well, thank you so much for the chat about the upcoming show. Greenhouse Theatre Project's Living Room One Act's pandemic edition play called Travel Plans, featuring Elizabeth Brown Palmieri and Jason Stanley, will be live on Zoom next Thursday, the 19th, and Friday, the 20th of November. It starts at 8 pm, and tickets are available at greenhousetp.org, and they cost $10. Thank you so much, Elizabeth and Rigel. Thank you so much, Diana, and thank you, Rigel. Thank you. This has been a real treat. For our next stop this morning, we're going to be leaving the bright lights of theatre and heading off into the darkened world of film, and specifically the True False Film Fest. If you're getting the popcorn, I'll have mine with salt, olive oil and some nutritional yeast, please. Thank you. For many of us, the sights and sounds of spring have become inextricably intertwined with the sound of 1,100 people applauding a documentary at the Missouri Theatre. But after this year... 
for me at least, that same sound in my memory will forever have the sound of a door slamming closed right after it. Back at the beginning of March, the 2020 True False Film Festival was the last arts event that squeaked into the history books before the COVID show came to town and stopped the world. And now, eight months later, with so much continuing to change on a week-by-week basis, even events that are still eight to 12 months out are working out how to adapt to whatever the next paradigm will be. And the annual True False Film Fest is one of them. But the show, in some capacity, will go on, we hope. And I am delighted to have one of Ragtech Film Society's co-directors, Barbie Banks, back on the show. Hello, Barbie. Hello, how are you? I am well. Does it worry you at all that the fest has, to some degree, become linked to what has now become the last weekend of normal? A little. I think I would be more concerned if there was a bunch of cases linked to the fest, but there wasn't. I think, I mean, we understand that was luck and that we were just in a good place in our community. But I hope that in 2021, we can throw a fest that's just different enough that makes people excited to get back to normal in 2022. So the date you have set for True False 2021 is May the 5th to the 9th, which I guess gives us a little longer to see what shape the world is in. And also it means you've got more access to outdoor venue options. Presumably, though, you've had a lot of discussions about not only when, but if the fest will happen. How did you get from if to May the 5th? Yeah, so we met with all of our partners, uh, people at the city, the county, our hotel partners, the Convention and Visitors Bureau, and the resounding word was, we need you to do something. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we took that as, all right, let's figure out what people are willing to attend. And it seems like outdoor activities are something that people are willing to do still, which is nice. And so we knew that um, sometimes March is beautiful and it feels like spring, but Mm -hmm. other times it is freezing cold and there's snow. And so we thought, let's push it a few months. That'll also give more time for a vaccine or um, a few more months of just clarity of what's going to happen. And so May 5th through the 9th, that also fits nicely in with graduations. It is Mother's Day weekend, but we hope you can just bring your mom to all of our events. (laughs) Now, I know from organizing an event in Stevens Lake Park at the beginning of June, that May can be really a very rainy month. What are your bad weather plans? So we'll be in Stevens Lake Park with the majority of our venues and we will show them if it's sprinkling, if it's bad weather, we have a backup of a drive-in. And so we'll switch everybody's tickets from sitting on the lawn to a drive-in. And then our ticket pricing, which they go on sale at the end of November, will be... um, such that you will get a refund if we have to cancel for COVID reasons or there's a you know horrible, horrible weather all weekend. But some of that will stay with our organization as a donation. So we learned a lot from the festivals that had to cancel after ours that you have to give people expectations up front so they know here's what's going to stay with the organization so we can survive. Here's what you can expect to get back or apply to the next year. So it is a gamble. I mean, we all know Missouri weather, but that we think we're going to at least have a few days of clarity where we can 
watch movies outdoors. And we've learned a lot from Roots and Blues to see how they do it. And I think it's going to be exciting. It'll be different for sure, you know, and much smaller than we're used to. So it'll be a little bit easier to manage the crowds if it does start pouring rain and that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, May 5th to the 9th is getting into brighter evenings and later sunset. So how do you show outdoor films when it's still light? Or presumably there aren't going to be as many films in the day. You're not going to go to films at 11am like we've been doing in the past. Right. Yeah. So typically we have around 45 to 50 films that we show. We will be showing more like 15 this year um, in 2021. And so we will just be showing films in the evening. And during the day, it will be much more focused on music and immersive arts programs. So if you can imagine that art enclosure that we normally do on 9th Street, we're moving that to Stevens Lake and it'll be a lot more robust and it'll be more opportunities for people to come in and experience art that can be done in the daylight. And then our music will almost double what we normally have. And so a little bit heavier on music and art than on film this next year. Is Stevens Lake Park ground zero for True Falls 2021 or do you have other venues that you're using too? It will be ground zero. So we'll have three different venues at Stevens Lake Park. And then we'll have a permanent drive-in that we're setting up, or I guess semi-permanent drive-in that we're setting up near the Conley Walmart. And then we will also be using Ragtag. So one of the past levels will be create your own schedule and you and your pod of quarantine friends can come in to ragtag and watch whatever films you want from the selections at any time. And so it'll be a much more private experience. It will cost a little bit more money, but we'll be using that venue. And then we'll also have a virtual option for people. We've learned from other festivals that virtual isn't everybody's favorite, but we still want to give that option for people who want to watch some films, but don't feel comfortable coming out of the house just yet. Going back to using ragtag for private groups, I'm not sure I understand how that would work. Explain that a bit more. Yeah, so we would have time slots throughout the day starting from 9am till midnight. And you would sign up for those time slots to come watch a movie with your your friends. And so if we're showing a film from this past year, Boy State, you would say, I want to watch Boy State at 11 o'clock on Friday. And you bring your people to come in and watch that. And our team will be ready to show whatever film from our lineup in 2021 at whatever time you've signed up for. Okay. And that would be in both big and small ragtag? Yes, correct. And so we don't know at this point what the permitted numbers will be in venues. So that's a little bit up in the air still. Yeah. So we... Um, we're kind of playing a guessing game currently. And we think uh, our hope is that the health department will work with us. And I mean, they've been great this whole time with the stuff that we've been doing. And so we don't anticipate that being hard. But currently, we just have, you know, 19 people in our small theater and 35 in the big. And so that might be all that we can fit in there. But it also could be two people, you know, a husband and wife that come to watch a film together with their past. So there is really then a, just a limited number of inside options available in that setup. So that is really a premium ticket uh, opportunity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, there's it is 
a risk. Like some people still don't want to come indoors. And so we don't really know exactly what the turnout will be for that. But it is safer if you're with the people that you pick rather than the public. So yeah, it's going to be much smaller. You know, normally, we have about 50,000 tickets that we sell, and we don't anticipate being anywhere near that this next year. But we still wanted to be able to do something. And it there's documentary films that are in the phase of coming out for people, and we want to be able to show them. Well, that leads into my next question, which is, you know, aside from the pandemic cutting off our supply of arts events, obviously, it's cut off the film industry's supply of films. (laughs) So what kind of content is True False and other festivals like Sundance? What are you looking at for your 2021 offerings when so little has been made this year? Yeah, so I mean, it's sort of in the place where everything that was coming out this year was likely made in 2019. And, you know, they were in the editing phase this year, and then we'll be ready to come out beginning of 2021. I think in 2022, we're going to see a lot less films available. So there are documentaries that are being submitted and films that were in the pipeline to be coming out this year that we'll be able to show. Sundance is still happening. They're doing a much different fest, mostly virtual. And so we get a lot of films from them typically. And so they have pushed theirs back, their festival back a little. And so it winds up nicely with ours to still get those films and show them. So we start tracking films about five or six years before they actually come to our festival. Wow. So there's some <laughs> films that we've been, you know, waiting for to come and this is the year for them to be out. And so I don't think we'll be lacking content, especially because most of the films we show don't have distribution yet. And that is where the holdup is, is distributors don't want to release a film that's not going to make them any money. So they're holding them back. And a lot of our film, those films at True False don't have that yet. And so it's a little easier to get them to come on board. Well, True False, as you said, I mean, it comes right on the heels of Sundance. And at that festival, a lot of films are snapped up by distributors and therefore are not available for True False, maybe because they're going straight to Netflix or they're only going to be available for larger theatre complexes or whatever else the reasons are that they just kind of disappear from, from view. Do you think the pandemic will change any of those kind of arrangements for next year or maybe 2022 too? I do think for the next few years, we're going to see access for us to be a little easier because we are one of the art houses that has continued. You know, there's not very many of them that are still open and running currently. And we're one of them that is, you know, we were number one in the country for a film in early October, Kajillionaire, and that never happens. <laughs> you know, like we, we're just never that high up. And so, you know, it's just a different world. And so I do think that it'll be easier for us to get content. Netflix, it's kind of the one thing that's a barrier for us. And they're playing really nice with us currently because they don't want to see art houses go away. They understand the value of them and know that films should be shown in a theater. And you can also watch them on your home television, but theaters are their first step. So is there a kind of league table of theatres then? Are you getting kind of good points for being open at this time? Are you going up in uh, <laughs> in the tiers by being open? I would say by being open, yes, but even more by doing outdoor films and by doing, you know, we have several drive-ins that we're going to be showing. And that has been where we've gotten the most brownie points. People (laughs) are excited for us to be innovating and not just saying, we can't do it the way we've always done it. So we're closing down for the next six months, you know, so that's been really helpful. And there's big distributors who are 
you know, we send a report every night to all the distributors. And one of them called us the next morning and said, are these numbers right? Because, (laughs) you know, we had like 150 tickets sold at an event at Logboat and they couldn't believe it. And that is honestly not that big of a number, but it is right now. So it is helpful. And True False also has a great reputation out in the film world. And so people want to work with us and I think they're going to be excited that we're doing something, even though it's going to be really different. You know, there have been so many fabulous documentaries over the years, and there's not many of us that have seen everything we wanted to see. Maybe we missed a year or there was just too much going on in one particular day. Is there any way of like taking the time of next year's fest when maybe there's not as much around and giving us another chance to nominate films that we'd like to see again? Yeah, that's funny you asked that because we were just talking about it this morning that, you know, we're we're still going to do something on the March weekend when the fest would have been. It'll be just likely a parade and a little fun activity. And from then until the fest in May, we're going to be doing a retrospective uh, of, of True False Films. And so our programmers will pick the films that we think got away or the ones that we thought would immediately go to Netflix after us and didn't get picked up for some reason and allow people to watch those. And those will be in the cinema and virtually for everybody to be able to have at least two and a half months of True False before (laughs) the May event. So there will be opportunities for that. And then there is a community member, I can't remember her name, but who has created a document that has all of the true false films and where you can watch them now. And so it'd be interesting to get a hold of that and see which ones people are most excited about and see if we can bring them back for a theater experience. That would be awesome. So the March March is still going to be in March. It's not going to be a May March. Or is it going to be a May March as well as the March March? There will be a May March and a March March. (laughs) The March March will still, it'll be very similar to what we always do. It'll kick off. um, We're still planning it, but some sort of activity that evening that is I don't know, burning, you know, a fire where we throw our anger into our, 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 the annoyance of COVID. And then that whole weekend in March um, will also be true false day downtown where the businesses downtown donate back some of their proceeds to us. And so we'll be doing some fun activities throughout the weekend at various locations. And we'll also be releasing our new uh, true false wines that weekend. So it'll be a fun time in March. And I hope it's beautiful weather for us to just get excited about being back outdoors. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll have a vaccine by then. And all of this outdoor planning will be a moot point, but we're going to do it anyway. You know, I'm sure even if there's three feet of snow on the ground, by the beginning of March, we'll be so desperate to be outside. It doesn't matter. We'll just be out in snow boots. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, we've seen several, you know, years where the March March is covered in snow and it doesn't stop anybody. So I think we're probably the only festival in the world that has a parade. And so why not have two of them next year? It'll be great. Exactly. And passes are available at the end of November, did you say? Yeah, we're starting on Small Business Saturday. Um, We'll have some deals going and passes will be available. We're selling a third of what we normally sell. So we do anticipate them selling out rather quickly. So I would jump on it as soon as you can. Perfect. Well, Barbie, thank you as always for coming to chat. And I will be looking out for those passes. Yeah, thank you. And it's back to the smell of the grease paint, the glare of the stage lights and the roar of the applause. Oh, right. COVID. 
It is a risky business opening a theatre right now, but Columbia Entertainment Company is taking that chance with a one-actor production and only 25 seats available per night, all six feet apart, with mandatory mask wearing for audience members throughout the production, and no in-person ticket sales available at the theatre. The new show is called Grounded by playwright George Brandt and, in recognition of everyone's differing levels of comfort, there are also two options to live stream the play. And here to tell us more about the play and the arrangements are the show's solo actor, Audrey Abeta, and its director, Christopher Gould. Good morning, Christopher and Audrey. Good morning. Good morning. Audrey, this is a huge undertaking for you as an actor, a super intense one-woman monologue about the emotional impact of being a military drone operator. Give us an overview of who you are in this play and what life you are living. Sure. So I am the pilot. She doesn't have a name. That's all we kind of know her by is as the pilot. And when we first meet her, she is very much this kind of intense brave Air Force fighter pilot. There's a lot of bravado and, but we also get the sense that being a pilot is really like such a core characteristic of her identity. Um, and she just loves the work that she does and loves the freedom of being in the sky or the blue as she calls it. And then she ends up pregnant and has to take some time away from her work as a pilot in the Air Force and when she returns, finds out that warfare is very different than it once was. It's now being fought by drones. So she's no longer in a, you know, in a fighter pilot by herself in the sky. And we get to watch the way that that affects her psychologically. It seems hard to imagine now, but when Grounded premiered uh, back in 2013, drones were barely in our collective consciousness. This was back in the Obama administration and drone warfare was still so new that apparently audiences had to check after the show whether or not drones were real. For the actor, it's a lonely 85 minutes on the stage exploring an intense range of emotions, but countered also by the character's kind of lack of emotion, the clip language, being one of the boys, yet also being a mother. Christopher, this is not a play that you can cast just any actor in. What made Audrey stand out for you? I have worked with Audrey before, and... So I know her personality. I know that she is very friendly, very engaging, very sweet. Pilot is an interesting character. She is very intense, and she there's a certain amount of bravado, as Audrey said, and machismo going on with what she does. I mean, she is, to use a dated phrase, a top gun. But she also has a tender side. The challenge to doing a one-person show is that most of what you're seeing visually is just one person sort of wandering around the stage. Um, there's not, you know, there's no choreography, there's no scene changes, there's nothing like that. And so I really wanted an actor for this role who could be engaging, who could engage the audience, who the audience would like, who would be able to communicate the range of emotions that are expressed by the character. Audrey fits the bill perfectly. I mean, she is very likable as a person, and I think that people will very much like and sympathize with her portrayal of the pilot. 
Audrey, what was your first impression of the play? Did you read this and think, I desperately want to do this? Or did you kind of have to be coaxed into it? Um, A little bit of both. (laughs) So I, you know, I was not fully planning to come out and audition just because, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I just moved and have a ton of projects I'm doing at home. And I have a tendency to put too much on my plate. And I'm trying to be more cautious of that. Um, And, you know, Christopher, as my friend and somebody I've worked with before, gently bothered me uh, until (laughs) I said that I would come audition. And so once I said, okay, yeah, I'll come out and do it um, and asked him to send me a copy of the script. And I wasn't really convinced until I read through the script. And it's just, it's such a powerful story. And it's such an unusual way of writing a show. And I just really, really loved the script and the story it tells. And so that kind of made me feel like, okay, yeah, this is something that I do want to do. I want to tell this story. And I've, like Christopher said, we've worked together before and I really enjoy working with him. So knowing that I get to do that again and, you know, have this really interesting experience that is not something I've been able to do before was really exciting. I mean, one person plays are not for the theatrically faint hearted. Audrey, talk to me about the experience of memorizing 85 minutes of monologue and having no safety net of fellow actors. Yeah, it's terrifying, to be honest. You know, um, it's it's alternatingly terrifying. And then there are periods where it feels very easy. So, you know, if you come see the show, as you'll see, there's it alternates a lot between these more narrative parts where we're learning about the pilot and her home life with her family and her work life. And those parts, for the most part, I found pretty easy to memorize because they're so narrative and you just get wrapped up in the story. But there's a lot of this transition between that home and work. And that's where it's hard to, where it becomes particularly terrifying that I'm up there alone um, because they're so similar. And yeah, so I mean, that's, I mean, it's, you know, it's still terrifying a little bit. Um, But there is also kind of this feeling of like, okay, if I pull this off, this is really a feat that, you know, a feat of memory that I have not attempted at all in the past. So it's terrifying, but it's also really exciting. Christopher, you are a veteran of the stage, both on it as an actor and as a director. And a one-actor play is also a huge undertaking for a director. How do you prepare your actor for the intensity and mental duress that it takes? (laughs) I encourage her a lot. I talk her up a lot. I occasionally Mm -hmm. talk her down, and then I talk her back (laughs) up. Um, It... Audrey is a really fantastic actor, and it it is a daunting task for anyone to essentially be the play. And so for me as a director, though, it's been a real treat because my favorite part of the process is actually going through sort of sentence by sentence almost and working out, okay, what is she feeling? How is she going to deliver that feeling? Um you know, what's going on in her mind, what's going on, what's going on in her mind, what's coming out of her mouth, and how do we portray the themes and emotions and thoughts that the playwright intended to have. And so working, working with a large cast can be very challenging because I have, you know, I'm trying to keep all these plates spinning on their (laughs) individual sticks. But with a one woman show, I only have one plate and one stick. And so I'm able to work really intensively with the actor. 
as far as how. I mean, it's the process is kind of the same regardless of what kind of play it is. We go through the play, and if I hear something I don't like or something that needs to change or something that we want to workshop, then I'll just stop. I, you know, a lot of directors will wait until the end of this end of the act or the end of the session and give their notes then and i tend to just kind of okay stop let's talk about this now let's fix this now while it's fresh in your mind the whole play is or the majority of the play is kind of these clipped almost one line comments and the intensity it feels as continually rising but obviously you have to have some dynamic range over the course of the 85 minutes and you're obviously ultimately rising to a crescendo as in any play Talk to me, Christopher, a little bit about the pacing for the play and how you create those dynamic ranges when it's just getting more and more and more and more intense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we've sort of mentioned the structure of the play without actually coming out and saying it. The play is not written in prose so much as it is in blank verse. There are these short, clipped sentence structures with many line breaks. And so to look at it is, to look at the script is like looking at a piece of poetry. But the beauty of the way that it's written is that that by just following the meter of the poetry, the actor actually speaks in the way that people talk. Because we don't tend to I mean, except maybe for me, we don't tend to talk in the huge blocks of prose. We tend to sort of stop and pause and you know pause for thought and and this is how it's written now as far as the um the levels the way it's structured is that it's little stories little stories that are all kind of strung together and some of the stories are funny and some of the stories are sad and some of the stories are very intense um particularly the battle sequences where she is guiding her drone to actually attack people 8,000 miles away. And so Audrey and I worked together on finding, okay, so where are the, where are the more chilled out spots? Where are the more funny spots? Where are the really intense spots where you need to really kind of focus on building a crescendo? Audrey, how did it feel for you learning that pacing? It was challenging at first, just because this is the writing style of the play. Isn't something that I've, you know, ever dealt with before. Um, And to be, doing it alone, right? You usually have that kind of interaction with other actors that gives the play some of that feeling of, of life and liveliness. So it was hard to, to figure that out at first. And, you know, and like Christopher said, we spent a lot of time focusing on, okay, right. So while this is written in blank verse, ultimately what we're doing is we're telling a story. And so this needs to feel like we are telling the audience a story, you know, and a story has highs and lows and it has moments of levity and moments of seriousness. And so how do we work with things like the tone and the pacing and body movement or facial expression to, to make it feel like you're hearing a story versus listening to me talk at you for 85 minutes um, about some really heavy material. And for a long time, I felt like, oh, this isn't, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. He's made a mistake. Um, and then, you know, we kind of had like a turning point where I felt like, okay, okay, I get it now. And it started to feel like, yes, this is a story. And as I got like more comfortable with the script and who the pilot is, it does feel like, okay, this is, this is a story that I know. And this is a story that I'm telling. And so it starts to come out that way. In talking about um, when Audrey was talking about how she's doing the role and, and working with like tone of voice and body language and things like that, 
It always amazes me how much artifice goes into making a performance look natural. I mean, people talk about method acting, and of course, I'm kind of a method actor myself, but you really have to think about your tone of voice, your body language, your facial expressions, and you have to craft all that in order to make it look natural. And it's it's always such a surprise to me, but it's so it's so rewarding. Well, do you have um, maybe a small section of the monologue that you could read for us and, and maybe set the scene first? Absolutely. So this is actually the opening of the play. So there's not a lot of context to give, but this is our kind of introduction to the pilot and who she is when we first meet her. I never wanted to take it off. Staring at myself in the mirror, myself in this, I had earned this. This was me now. This was who I was now, who I'd become through sweat and brains and guts. This is me. It's more than a suit. It's the speed. It's the G-force pressing you back as you tear the sky. It's the ride. My tiger. My gal who cradles me, lifts me up. It's more. It's the respect. It's the danger. It's, it's more. It's, you are the blue. You are alone in the vastness and you are the blue. Astronauts, they have eternity, but I have color. I have blue. Thank you, Audrey. Well done, Audrey. There is a very precise character description at the beginning of the play about the actor who should be cast. Amongst other things, it says that um, she should possess normal color vision and meet other physical weight requirements with no more than 32% body fat. She should be able to complete a 1.5 mile run in 13 minutes and 56 seconds or less, as well as complete 50 sit-ups and 27 push-ups in a timed test of one minute each. Audrey, tell me about the physical prep for this show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, so it does say that the pilot should have a standing height between five foot four inches and six feet five inches. And I do fall in there. Um, (laughs) So I meet that. Um, We meet the pilot after she's had a kid. So I'm maybe not, (laughs) not uh, the pilot at her, the top of her, top of her Air Force game straight out of basic. I joked with Christopher that maybe I should start doing some some PT to prep for the show. And I was like, I'm certainly not asking you to do that. Um, but, you know, you do what you want to. I mean, this is community theater after all. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty precise. What is the point of putting that in there, do you think? Well, I think uh, the I mean, the idea is that these are the requirements for someone to actually be an active Air Force. Mm-hmm. So, um I believe this is the playwright. The playwright's intent is to have someone who is does meet the requirements for active duty Air Force to play the role, so that the person is believable in this role. Now, as I as I said, this is community theater, and so you know, with no offense meant to Audrey, it's mm-hmm. a matter of it's a matter of taking what you get. Um, but Audrey really does fill out the role just perfectly and if she can't do a a mile in you know whatever the time constraints are there um she certainly does portray the intensity and the i'll just go ahead and say the devastation of the role 
The actor who played the pilot in the early UK version, Lucy Ellenson, she said of the script, I expected the monologue you expect as a female actor. Nine pages in, an insight into the character's fragility or frailty, some sort of hidden sadness, and it never came. Audrey, do you like the pilot? Are you able to bond with her? Yes. Yeah, I do. I really like her. You know, and while I do not in my own personal life, get to have the bravado of being a fighter pilot. I do feel a lot of similarities with her. You know, I think she's kind of a kindred spirit in that she's very much, you know, when we first meet her, she's very much one of the boys. She's always talking about the way she likes to unwind is to get a beer with her boys and shoot pool and listen to music. And the man that she ends up marrying in the show is very tender and sweet and completely devoted to her and a little sappy. And you know, as much as she loves that, at least at the beginning, you see this kind of, um, she's a little bit, a little bit embarrassed, I think, at how <laughs> sentimental he is. You know, she's very much someone who like, she's kind of tough and doesn't like to feel her feelings and be the girly girl. And that is very much me. And so I do. So especially in those pieces, when she's talking about her husband and, you know, trying to, you can tell that she's struggling to not come off like this lovesick woman because she does really love him, but that's not who she is. You know, we get to those parts and Christopher and I are talking through, okay, what's she feeling here? And I was like, listen, I got like, I got this. I know, I know how that feels. <laughs> um, <laughs> that part, I know exactly what's happening here. So that's been really nice to feel like there is this, these pieces that while the biggest pieces of her life, I don't relate to personally, there are these pieces of her personality that it feels like, okay, like I, I am you a little bit. And I know how to portray that to give a realistic portrayal of you. So Christopher, before we close, this production has, there's two ways you can see it. There are in-person, on-stage opportunities at CEC Theatre, but you're also streaming two of those performances. Is that Friday night and Sunday matinee? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Friday evening and Sunday matinee. And if people are interested in streaming, I'm trying to pull up. I was silly and did not pull up the website um, for where they can do that. Well, I've done that. If you click on the tickets, it gives you an option. For those two dates, it says ask if you want in-person tickets or streaming tickets. So it gives you that option when you're in the website. Fabulous. Because I, you know, I, I, of course, I'm, I'm concentrating on, on the art. And so I don't ever look at, I don't ever look at the business side of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether you would prefer to watch it in person or through live streaming, Grounded, starring Audrey Abeta and directed by Christopher Gould, opened last night and continues tonight and tomorrow night at 7.30 with a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. The two live streaming options are tonight and the Sunday matinee. Tickets will not be be available at the theatre. So whether you're opting for an in-person viewing or live streaming, you will need to buy them in advance, which you can do at cectheatre.org and tickets cost $14. Thank you so much, Audrey Aveta and Christopher Gould for sharing your grounded experiences. Thanks Thank for you. That is it for another week. Let us remember that swirling dust bunnies are the enemy as we head into winter and that our vibrant arts organisations need us to keep the flame alive even on the shortest day. 
the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri and Rigel Oliveri from Greenhouse Theatre Project, Ragtech Film Society's Barbie Banks, and Christopher Gould and Audrey Abeta from Columbia Entertainment Company. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the art curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.